and ghouls welcome to a very special interview episode of dads from the crypt today i'm interviewing writer director producer all-around great guy bob gale welcome to the show thanks jason happy to be here let's dive into some background uh what's the first movie you remember seeing the first movie would have been a disney movie and it was either davy crockett in the river pirates which was uh, the feature that they that Disney made from two or three episodes of uh, of the TV series, or it could have been Disney's Peter Pan. It was one of those two. Mm-hmm. And then, what were your earliest, or what what would you consider your horror or cinematic influences? Um, they're two they're two different things, of course. Right. <laughs> um, um, you know, like all like all young boys. I was always interested in monsters and horror and they had a local TV station ran monster movies after school. So, you know, you ran home to watch some terrible B movie or every once in a while, they snuck a good one in there. And, you know, this was the fifties. It was the heyday of, of Roger Corman. I remember going to see um, invasion of the saucer men. Um, that was the one where, the aliens came down to a drive-in movie theater mm-hmm. and their weakness was the sound of car horns. So every <laughs> everybody in the parking lot banged on their horns and that's why the aliens lost. <laughs> wow. So that was that movie like five minutes long. Oh God. They were all those things were padded, you know, you've seen yeah. you've seen enough of those things. And of course the the movie that scared the hell out of me the most probably I saw it on TV was in, the original Invaders from Mars. Oh, yeah. I mean, the idea, you know, when you're a little kid and the idea that your parents are not really your parents, that's very, very creepy. So mm-hmm. that that definitely was something that fried my brain. Um, yeah, I, I, started reading, I started reading comic books when I was probably seven years old or so, you know, starting with um, Harvey comics and Disney comics and then moving into DC and then, uh, and then Marvel by the time I was in high school. And, you know, we knew about all the great EC comics. Um, I think there was some hardback collection that, that came out in the late sixties or the early seventies. But um, I was friends with a group of guys that were into comics. And every once in a while, somebody would unearth an, an issue of, of Tales from the Crypt or or, um, or Vault of Horror or, you know, one of the great science fiction comics, incredible um, science fan, weird, weird science. Um, and we devoured those things because, you know, even... Even at that age, you know, you knew that 
the quality, the artwork, it was just so much better than the other stuff that you were seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into your, your love of comics in a minute. Um, but how did you get into filmmaking? I always liked um, storytelling. So creative writing was always a passion for me. Mm-hmm. I say Disney, the, the great Disney animated movies had a profound effect on me. And I, I actually remember telling, telling kids when I was in the second or third grade that when I grow up, I'm going to go to Hollywood and work for Walt Disney. Um, the, um, I picked up a movie camera in 11th grade, 12th grade. And the first thing that we did, my friends and I, uh, we made a spoof of the old Commando Cody Rocketman movie serials, which were, you know, a huge influence on our, on our childhood. And, um, ever the producer, um, you know, our friends would see us run around with the camera and they're going, Hey, you guys are making a movie. Can I be in it? And I'd say, well, sure, but you have to pay to be in it because film is expensive and we need to pay for the, the film that you're going to be in. And mm-hmm. they say, okay, okay. So, um, uh, so you're kickstarting. It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a business model that does that doesn't work in Hollywood, but, um, it kind of works. It kind of works in Broadway where they just get all these different investors and they're just happy to be part of it, whether the show uh, works or not. Then you went to uh, USC? Yes. Well, actually, so I'm making movies in high school and having a great time. And, of course, I'm growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. And, you know, you go to career day. And there is not somebody there from Warner Brothers telling you, hey, kid, you could be a you could have a future in the movie business. Um, so I was good in math and I was good in science. So, you know, the guidance people said, well, then you should go in engineering since you're so good in that stuff. And I was good in other stuff, too. But they said, we need engineers. So you should go to engineering school. My grades were good enough to get in any kind of anywhere I wanted. My parents were cool about saying, yeah, you can go away to school, but it's got to be within a 600-mile radius of St. Louis. And I said, okay, um, New Orleans is within 600 miles of St. Louis, and I always want to see the Mardi Gras. So, <laughs> uh, and the drinking age was only 18. Right. So I applied, I applied to Tulane, and I got in, and I spent my freshman year at engineering school at Tulane, now, there was a guy in my dormitory. Uh, his name is Ron Weinberg, uh, who's from Great Neck, New York. And he was also an amateur filmmaker. And he was in engineering, too, and didn't didn't take to it any better than I did. Uh, and he said, hey, Gail, you know, they got film schools in California. And if you make your hobby into your career, it won't feel like you're going to work every day. Now this was like visionary, visionary advice that you know nobody, nobody that wears a tie in high school is ever going to tell you. But I said, "Wow, that makes a hell of a lot of sense." So I rode away to USC and UCLA, and I got their catalogs, and I'm reading the course descriptions, and all this stuff sounded a whole lot more interesting than organic chemistry. So I couldn't get into UCLA because I was from out of state, but 
I did get into USC. And again, my parents were, were very cool about it. They didn't think that there was any snowball's chance in hell I had of, of making it in the movie business. But the fact that this was, you know, the University of Southern California, and I was going to leave the program with a Bachelor of Arts in Cinema. Um, it was a real college. And um, they said, okay, get it out of your system. And uh, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the question. Did you make it to Mardi Gras uh, while you're at Tulane? Or did you Hell leave? yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. There were parades every night. You know, lots of us were going down to Canal Street and watching these parades all the time. It was a blast. I'm just thinking about Easy Rider now. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> All right. So you get to USC. You started um, taking your classes. And when did you meet Bob Z? Uh, I met Bob Z in my junior year because the USC cinema program was a two-year program. Um, you know, I took some kind of introductory cinema class in my sophomore year. But it really, it really began in the junior year. And Zemeckis had gone to uh, Northern Illinois University for his freshman and sophomore years. And he submitted a film that he made and uh, they loved it at USC. And they, he, he got a scholarship. Our first day in our filmmaking class, the, at that time there were, we had 47 students in our class. That was it. And 80% of them were graduate students. So the, naturally, the undergrads kind of gravitated towards each other, and we wanted to make Hollywood movies. And the, you know, the graduate students have their veneer of sophistication, and they're talking about the greatness of uh, the greatness of uh, you know Jean Luc Godard and, and the French New Wave, and you know Bob Zemeckis and I and some of these other guys were talking about you know. Dirty Harry and James Bond. That was that's what we were interested in. All right. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit uh chronologically to your Tales from the Crypt episode. I want to get that that uh up front. Okay. So um, you know, you're I'm you I'm assuming you were like kind of in the orbit of uh Yes, yeah. Because I knew I knew obviously uh, Bob's and I were were friends and I kind of had a love-hate relationship with Joel Silver, which is I think yeah. the only kind of relationship you can have with him. Um, uh, uh, and, and really kind of the catalyst on all of this, believe it or not, was, was Walter Hill because, um, Walter directed a script that Bob and I wrote called Press Pass. And I was one of the executive producers on it. So I'd go down to location and keep an eye on it. And, uh, I got along with Walter great. I, there, there are not enough superlatives in the English language to describe Walter Hill, in my opinion. Um, and real quick, uh, did you read the book that just came out about him? Uh, our, um, our friend no, David no. worked with the author Wayne and Wayne wrote oh, a book about that's the, right. Uh, I knew Wayne was writing and I didn't know that the book finally got into print. Mm -hmm. Okay. I will have to get my hands on it. Then. Yeah. Great. Um, so, you know, Walter said to me, he said, Gail, you should be directing, you know, you got a good, you got a good sense of stuff. Cause I'd, I'd be there looking at how Walter set up a shot and I'd kind of say, you know, Walter, what if he went in this way or did something And I'm, you know, I've got my, both my writer's hat on and my, 
visual storytelling sense on. And he said, you know, we get back after this is over, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, make a big push for you to direct an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. So my recollection is that uh, Gil Adler and Alan Katz, they may have given me several stories to look at to pick which one I wanted to adapt. And the, the one that I picked was called House of Horror, uh, which was a haunted house story with a fraternity spin on it. And I thought, okay, I could have a lot of, I could have a lot of fun with this. Right. And um, they said, great, you know, write something, do it. And I don't remember there being any problems with, with, uh, with the script uh, that I came up with. Um, I think the, I think the version of the story that I that I told is, is is a little bit better than what was in the comics because the story in the comic books doesn't really have a have have a hard ending. It's just kind of one, you know, we the crypt keeper comes out and says, Well, we'll have to speculate on what happened to those boys inside of that house. Right. Yeah, as as with a lot of those those stories, they tend to be a little on the flimsy side. At least if you're going to adapt it to a half hour TV show, they're usually pretty straightforward because they only have like six pages to work with. Right. Right. Um, so what what was in kind of in your mind as you're thinking about how can I expand this? Were you thinking like Animal House, Revenge of the Nerds meets Demons? Well, yeah, Animal House was, of course, certainly you know if you're if you're talking about fraternity, you got to. Can't not think about Animal House, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I had actually been a fraternity pledge back when I was at Tulane, so okay. I had I I I bailed on it, but um, <laughs> I at least had I at least had some personal knowledge of the uh, of, of how how all that stuff worked. So what um, um what house did you pledge? Tau Epsilon Phi. I, I was an AAPI back in my day, and I was a pledge master for um, full, comp- oh, really? full transparency. <laughs> so I, th- I love this episode partly because of that. <laughs> you know, they, they liked it because it was all, you know, they didn't have to, they didn't have to go looking after, looking out for some big star to be in it. Mm-hmm. And so I got, a, I ended up with a really good cast of, of young up up and coming actors, oh, and yeah. of course they wanted, you know, they wanted as much sex and violence in it as possible. Uh, I was able to do more with the violence aspect than the sex, but that was that was fine with them. And um, so so this was this was all good. Uh, Rick Boda, the director of photographer, director of photography, uh, he was he was terrific. He was he was really helpful in uh you know helping helping me figure out some of the shots that we could do and the house that we used was way out near magic mountain it was in valencia and it was built for a dan Aykroyd movie called git uh at least that was the working title of it i think it was uh, uh, nothing but trouble maybe i yeah, yeah. The script was called GIT, but I, yeah, they must have changed it. At least, at anyway, least when I talked to Keith Coogan, he said that's what it was. Oh, all right. Actually, I saw I saw Keith for the first time in a long time over the summer. Yeah, uh, we we were at a uh, 
at a comic convention in the UK together. Um, wonderful man. Yeah, um, he, he talked about that. He was very impressed that you remembered him, and he um, said how 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 much you enjoyed your first directorial uh, venture. <laughs> he was great. They were all good. They were all good. Oh, it's and, an amazing uh, cast. My question is, how did you wrangle all these uh, young actors? And it seems like these guys must have got rowdy. Well, it, it wasn't hard at all, actually, because they all wanted to be there. I mean, it, at that time, it was a badge of honor to be able to be in a Tales from the Crypt episode. Mm. Um, it was, you know, it was an easy, uh, it was an easy gig because they were all shot in five days. And, um, you know, okay, you couldn't pay them the amount of money they would get in a feature. That's okay. It's only five days, and I get to be on Tales from the Crypt. So there was a, there was definitely a, a, a cachet and and a, a badge of honor that you got for being in one. And so what would invariably happen, at least my recollection was, um, somebody would you know, I'd, I'd cast somebody or I'd see somebody and, you know, all these young actors know each other. All they, you know, all actors of a certain age group always know each other. So I say, Hey, you know, you should go up for this thing. It, it looks like it, it looks like it ought to be fun. And of course, Courtney Gaines, he was in, uh, he was in back to the future. So I already knew him. So I said, okay, yeah, we got, I got to put, I got to put Courtney in this. Now the, the most interesting thing that happened on that shoot uh, involved Kevin Dillon. I mean, Kevin, Kevin, he, you know, he completely eats the scenery in that show. Oh, and yeah. and he, he's, he's just great. He is just great. Well, Kevin, unbeknownst to anybody, he had like six speeding tickets. He lives in New Jersey. So he had six speeding tickets uh in uh in in California and uh he didn't pay him because he was going back to New Jersey. Well so when he was driving home from a rehearsal, um he gets pulled over for speeding. Or maybe it was it was probably it was actually I think the second day, the first day of shooting. He's driving home and he's speeding on on uh Interstate five and the cops pull him over and they find out he's got all these speeding tickets. So they're not going to let him go. They put him in jail. So oh, no. I, I get, I get a call early the next morning. Cause you know, we're shooting late into the night. I get a call from Bill Adler. He says, he says, Bob. And, and also it, it was, it was raining as, as I remember. So that threw a big crimp into our, in our shooting schedule. He said, Bob, I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> Your lead actor's in jail. And, you know, I responded with the appropriate expletives. And he said, don't worry. We've got everybody from HBO. All the lawyers, are, they're going to get him out. They're going to get him out. But we don't know when he's going to get out. So you need to rework your shot list and your shooting plan. Uh, and expect that you're not going to get Kevin on the set until after lunch. So, okay. Um, I did that. I, I got it all rearranged and apparently Kevin might've had a couple of drinks too. Uh, 
No. I, I, that, I'm not long time ago. I'm not sure. But anyway, Kevin did not get any sleep. That's for that. I do remember he came, he showed up, but he had not, you know, he slept maybe an hour or two in the cell. However, being the professional that he is, Kevin had memorized all of his lines and he had known, he, he'd learned these lines backwards and forwards, you know, a week or two in advance. So he just kind of kicked into automatic pilot and it was like, okay, he was, he was great. It, it turned out to not be that big of a deal. And oh, in, in fact, I can see that enhancing his performance, just like bringing <laughs> that energy in a little bit of rage. <laughs> Maybe it did. Maybe so like, it did. Cause one of the hallmarks of a great telesnicker episode are big performances. Yes. This is the place where you want to go big. And exactly. I don't think he could have gone any bigger without bursting through the set like the Kool-Aid man. Um, did you I, I, ever have to pull him back and say, Kevin, just just tone it down one notch? You're gonna No, I don't ever remember. I, I don't ever I just I just can you know, kind of, you know, wind up the toy and let it go. <laughs> um and I I do remember one moment he said, gee. I'm really good at playing an asshole, aren't I? Yes. And that's another hallmark of a great uh, Tales of the Crypt is someone that you just want to really, really hate and you just can't wait yeah. for them to get it. And he he gets it. Um, did he get to keep his severed head? Well, that's the next story I got to oh, tell you. No. Because that was that was uh, a very interesting, very interesting story. Um uh, for those of you who haven't seen the episode, you should stop listening to this podcast right now uh, and go find it. I think you can find it on YouTube or somewhere. Um, watch the episode and then come back to the podcast because I don't want to ruin the ending if you haven't seen it. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> uh, now you've seen the episode uh, and you know that the that the payoff of all this is... Kevin Dillon's severed head rolling down this uh, flight of stairs. And uh, one of the fraternity guys picks it up and says, of course, in proper EC tradition, good Lord. Now, I had I did this shot where I think it was the fraternity president that picks up the picks up the head. And it's a close-up. And the guys that did the that that built this head. It was it was just fabulous. It was mm -hmm. fabulous. Well, so you know, I I put my cut of the show together, and all the executive producers take a look at it, and everybody's everybody's happy with everything, except for Dick Donner. Dick Donner does not like the head. Mm. He just thought, um, end it, end it with the chain the chainsaw sound effects coming from above. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, I guess he was trying to be classier or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's not the place for uh, classy. <laughs> that's exactly, exactly. So, you know, I just, I just kept annoying him. And finally he said, well, I guess it's okay to do the wide shot with the head rolling down the stairs. And I said, Dick, everybody's got to see who it is. Everybody says, no, you don't need that shot. I'm telling you, you don't need that shot. Okay, so I'm thinking about what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? I get the head. I get a gift box. 
I put the head in a gift box. I wrap it, put ribbon on it, and I have it delivered to Dick Donner. Dear Dick, you know, thank you for your support on this show. I wasn't there when he opened it, of course. <laughs> he opens it up. He must have jumped two feet in the air. And then the phone rings. He says, okay, Gail, put the head in. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And this was probably <laughs> at least a couple years before 7 came out. So you're you're really ahead of the game, they, they might say. <laughs> no, this is this is like definitely a fan favorite. Um, I mean, I don't have any data on that, but it's one that everyone like brings up um as a as a classic episode it's one you know even when i saw it as you know probably middle school or whatever it's one i i very vividly remember and it's so it's so relatable um and you know you got the guys impressing the girls and you have that great gag with the uh delta omega alpha yeah because every time i hear that i'm like oh doa (laughs) got it yeah 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 sorority yeah and all the you know, all the all the mechanics of it are all set up. Mm-hmm. You know, the wall of shame. That it makes sense when you find out who the guy is in the cloak. Um mm-hmm. and actually one of the nice things that that the actors came up with, there's there's a gag with uh with Kevin and Peter Deloise. Uh you know, Peter's got all the sound effects rigged in the house, in the uh haunted house. And all the other gags. And um, the severed arm comes flying out the window. And uh, uh, I think I think this is the gag where, where this happens. And um, Kevin says to uh, Peter, uh, great arm gag. And he says, I didn't do it. And they look at each other and they just both of them go, uh, like they're both funning each other. That moment was was really something that they came up with. Mm. That was just a perfect perfect button to that. I don't recall if if I'd written anything beyond beyond that, but that just made it that just made it really work work beautifully. And that's you know that's why you got to get good actors and let them uh, let them act and let them do what they know how to do. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really like about this episode because it's a lot of like elevation and then kind of like something happens, but like, oh, is it real? Is it not? Oh, it's just the arm from like, the cadaver lab, which I guess is, right. was a common thing. Right. So yeah, it's like there's a lot of like school, ele- yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of like little elevations, and then okay, you go back down, and then you kind of it keeps ramping up in different ways. I really uh, like that about this episode, where Thank a lot you. of the episodes are kind of like one big build to a payoff. Yeah. This one has lots of little payoffs kind of through. Because you have the um the the quote guy just up as the coffer running around. You think that's yeah the coffer. <laughs> that's the main guy. Did um whose coughing was that? Boy, I don't have any idea. <laughs> I don't have any idea. Whoever our sound guy was, and I our sound effects guy, I'm sure he came up with it. Yeah. Um. Are there any other fun stories from that shoot you want to uh, share? Well, it was, I would just say that um, uh, I called up, I called up my friend, Alan Silvestri. And I said, Hey, Al, <laughs> can you score this for me? And he said, for you, Bob, sure. Um, and I said, I can't pay you anything. You know, he said, that's okay. That's okay. It's a Zemeckis show too. So yeah, you got it. So 
he came up with that and I, I asked him to I asked him to do a version of uh, of uh, Brahms academic festival oh, yeah. overture theme at the very beginning the the home of, the classic kind of home of modern tune that everybody knows and um, yeah Al did a fantastic job and uh, say Rick Boda knew how to like that stuff. Well, also Great. speaking of the sound effects, I noticed that some at some parts you can faintly hear like a heartbeat kind of happening. Kind of in the, it's kind of in the very back of the of the track, but I think it's like to kind well, of pace you a little bit. You always use that, you know. You always use that to to add tension when the guys are going up the stairs. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's where it's in, where where I'm using it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic episode that you know definitely stands the test of time. Thank you. All right, I want to move on to talk about some of your movies. Um, and this is more of a general question that I'll get a little more specific. So when I look at a lot of your movies, start with like, I want to hold your hand in 1941. And then very literally in Back to the Future, there's a theme of going back into the past to a specific time frame and kind of examining the uh, the zeitgeist, I guess you could call it, of, of a specific time or events. Uh, why does that appeal to you? Well, the appeal is simply, you know, we you start off with an idea. And the idea for I Want to Hold Your Hand was a bunch of girls trying to crash the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles appeared, which was a big event in, when Bob and I were in junior high school. So it was something very dear to us, uh, the whole Beatles thing and Beatles fandom. And so, I mean, that the period just comes out of that story. Uh, the same in 1941, we came across this incident of the false alarm air raid attack, which actually happened in 1942. And we just said uh, to, uh, to John Milius, who wanted to hire us to write a script for him, um, we said, hey, John, we, we know about this crazy thing that happened in LA in early 1942. We think that there could be, you know, some insane kind of comedy to be done with that. And Millie's knew about it. So the, those things just kind of came out of, they came out of the idea. We didn't start with saying, you know, I, I actually recently watched L.A. Confidential mm -hmm. again, which is a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hadn't watched all the special features. And Curtis Hansen, the director, is talking about how, where, what drew him to it was he really wanted to do uh, Los Angeles in the 1950s uh, movie. He was, that was what he grew up, the, the period he grew up in and the, the memories that he had. And he wanted to, wanted to find a story that he could uh, work in that time period. But we never looked at it that way. Um, you know, back to the future. Yeah. It's most of it takes place in 1955, but um when we made it, it was a contemporary movie. Marty McFly's in 1985, uh, which is when the movie is released. And um, the idea of it, of course, is a kid goes back in time and ends up in high school with his parents. So when is he going to be able to, what year is it going to be when he does that? Well, you just got to, you got to go 30 years, you know, you got to go 30 years in the past. So, so there, there it is. And trespass, obviously, that doesn't have anything. It doesn't well, have anything to do with any period. Uh, so, um, 
yeah you know it's it's the story that it's a story it's the concepts that grab us um you know, the first script that we wrote as i think you know is was bordello of blood and that was a contemporary uh it was a it was a contemporary story mm-hmm. um we actually did a version of it where we changed it to the 50s and mm. we called it fangs of 59 Ooh, i like that <laughs> um well, I, so I, I read a book about eight movies in the eighties, and one of the big themes that they talk about is a desire to go to go back and skip over the tumultuous sixties and early seventies back into the fifties, because that was a quote unquote seemingly simple the Leave It to Beaver era, whether you know that was ever actually a true representation or not. Well, one of the predictions that we made in Back to the Future Part 2 in, for 2015 was the Cafe 80s. Yeah. That there would be a Cafe 80s. Because we thought, you know what? People are always nostalgic about mm. the generation that was 30 years prior. So in the 80s, there was the Cafe 50s. So we figured in 2015, there would be the Cafe uh, the cafe eighties. Now I don't know whether somebody's got a cafe nineties right now. Um, it'd be interesting to look that up. And and you're right. I don't remember there ever being like a cafe seventies. Um, I don't know. It seems to me that there's, you know, they made lots of movies about the about the sixties and the and the counterculture. Looking mm-hmm. back at it, I mean. You know, Aaron Sorkin did that Chicago Seven movie. Right. Was, you know, so, I think that what what often happens, in my opinion, is that guys write these books and they're looking for some kind of a thread to connect stuff. And okay, they can find you know you can find a whole bunch of stuff, but John Hughes movies were all contemporary when he made them, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then. I've, I've always pointed out to people, you can find more books written about John Ford uh, and Alfred Hitchcock than you can about uh, William Wyler, because John Ford and Hitchcock, there's there's a thread that runs through their work. Hitchcock, obviously, what it is, and Ford, you know, all the all the westerns that he did, and if you look at the work of William Wyler. Uh, Clearly, one of the greatest directors ever. Um, there isn't, there is, you don't have that overt thing where you can say, ah, yes, this is why it's a William Wyler movie. You know, he was just a really good, good director. Um, you know, Billy Wilder, a little bit like that too, although he's got this, he's got this really strong sense of cynicism, uh, even in, even in his comedies. Um, yeah. Bob and I learned an awful lot of, about screenwriting from watching Billy Wilder movies. Yeah, I just want to go back for a second when you're talking about the '90s because I I went I was in high school in the '90s and suddenly in the last couple of years the '90s have definitely been the quote nostalgic range at least as far right. as like a lot of media and it's really it's it has really made me feel a bit older I think <laughs> um, when the music I grew up on is now like what oldies would have been and. Right. Yeah. Um, gosh, there was something I can't remember what it was, but there was some meme that was going around about like a certain event 
was closer to Pearl Harbor than it is now, or it's closer to now than it was to Pearl Harbor. And I was like, wow, that, that feels wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I hear you. I know, I know what you mean by that. Um, all right. Well, let me let me uh, let me get into this for a second. So during the pandemic, AMC had a deal where you could rent out a movie theater and they gave you a list of movies you could choose. So I took my kids to see uh, Back to the Future to show that to them for the first time. And normally they don't sit through a movie. And I figured, well, we'll have a whole movie theater to like fuss around in. And we can sit just the, just the, uh, my little family and we can uh, try to enjoy a movie. And from the second the guitar amp blows Marty to the side, they were falling over laughing and they were hooked and enthralled the, the rest of the way. I've never seen them like that. Wow. How old? Uh, seven. So wow. seven year olds. Okay. So my question is why, why do you think this movie is just so effective at captivating audiences across generations, across ages, probably across cultures? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for it, depending on how old you are. Mm-hmm. But certainly by the time you're, by the time you're seven or eight, um, there's there's a moment in everybody's life when they completely understand. My parents were once kids. Mm. It's a cosmic thing. It's it really is because you know you think you're five years old and your parents are gods. You know they they can do anything, whatever they say, and you can't imagine that they ever could have been anything else. But then at a certain point, you know, you start to realize, wait a minute, these clothes that I was wearing last year, they don't fit me anymore. And um, my shoes don't fit. And when your parents say, well, when I was your age, and at some point it clicks, they were my age. And Back to the Future is a movie that really, you know, that, that depicts that, that whole idea, you know, the, the, the moment in the cafe when Michael J. Fox looks over at his father, there's the great shot that Bob designed where, uh, you know, Crispin Glover is in George is in profile. And then you just kind of see <laughs> Michael's fate, Marty just yeah. coming, coming, coming behind his, with his jaw dropped open. And that, is kind of the the seminal moment where everybody gets what this movie where this movie's going mm. and it's just it and it doesn't matter how old you are what culture you're in it's something that you can relate to yeah um because it, it it's a very very human thing everybody mm. wants to know what do my parents do on their first date um yeah <laughs> Let's face it. You don't. Maybe you don't want to know too much, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because yeah, the core is that human story, but then you put the amazing performances and the effects, and then the great score right. all wrapping around it, right? Lifting and then, it up, and yeah, that dresses it all up really nicely. So you know, we, you know, we get your attention like we got your kids' attention with the with the speaker blowing up at the beginning, and there's enough little crazy stuff going on where, you know, the fact that your seven-year-old kids were able to sit through the exposition at the dinner table mm-hmm. scene, um, that's, uh, I mean, we're, they were able to sit through that exposition. Um, and it's, 
you know, it is, it is, it is the slow point in the movie, but you're just kind of aware that, okay, um, something is going on here. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm going to trust the filmmakers here that I'm in the hands of somebody that knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then, then, uh, the DeLorean appears and, uh, you know, nobody's getting up out of their, out of their seat. You're literally off to the races. <laughs> um, now I, I know you, you've been asked questions about back to the future for almost 40 years now. Okay. I'm not even sure. So I, I posted to a back to the future Reddit group to see if people could come up with a question you haven't heard before. Okay. Um, you user United fans, 6191 asked, What's the story behind 1985? So this is uh, and this is Back to Future Two. So 1985, Marty being at a boarding school in Switzerland. Was it because he set the living room uh, rug on fire that prompted Biff to send them out? I mean, I understand story wise, yes, we can't have two Martys in the same place. But was that a callback to the? Basically, we just needed to have a reason why the Marty of 1985A wasn't there mm -hmm. um we couldn't have we could not have two marty's so we the idea that you know we came up with this idea the idea that biff would have him sent off to a boarding school that was about as far away as you could get from from mm -hmm. hill valley california uh just said hey i just want this kid's obnoxious i can't stand him um we're sending him off to boarding school in switzerland so it had nothing to do with the rug catching on fire. It was it was a pragmatic thing to say. Yeah. What are we what what are we going to say about Marty? In Back to the Future Part Two, we had we we filmed and I'm, I don't remember if it's in the deleted scenes or not. We filmed the scene where Marty uh, ran into uh, Dave, his, his older brother, who was a drunk. Uh, you know, kind of passed out on the passed out on the steps of Biff's casino or somewhere in the, in that vicinity. And it was, it was a nice scene. Um, but we ended up cutting it out because Wendy Jo Sperber who played his sister, Linda was pregnant at the time or was on maternity leave, whatever. She was like nine months, eight or nine months pregnant. And there, she was not in any condition to shoot. So, Cause we had conceived of a scene for her as well. And what we realized was that if the audience sees Dave McFly, but they don't see Linda, everybody's going to be wondering what happened to her. Why, why is she not in the movie? But so by not having Dave in it, it's a question that nobody asks. Right. So has anyone ever asked you that question before about Switzerland? No, it is, okay. it is new. It's new. Yeah. <laughs> we got one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of deleted scenes, this is from user Jamie Lex. Um, of all the material that didn't make it into the film, original ideas, deleted scenes, are there any you would have liked to see in the final product? Not really. You know, a lot of people say, well, when are you guys going to go back and do a director's cut? Uh, and we say, well, these are the director's cuts. Um, these are the movies that we made uh, after testing them with an audience to say, okay, you know, we had these extra gags with Marty walking around in the town square and looking at some of the period details, but the stuff, it slowed the, it slowed the movie down. Yeah. So we cut it out. We had this gag 
where George McFly uh, isn't sure what time it is. So he goes into a phone booth at the dance uh, to find out if it's, if it's how close it is to nine o'clock to call the time and temperature. Um, and, uh, and um, uh, Dixon, the played by Courtney games, locks him in the, Box them in the uh, phone booth, um, mm. and it was funny, but it, we just didn't need it. So uh, there were about seven minutes of cuts in the first movie. Um, the we cut virtually nothing out of Back to Future Three. The only thing that we cut, we did a scene where you see uh, Mad Dog Cannon actually murder Marshall Strickland. Yeah, I've seen that one. That's sad. It's right gut wrenching, yeah. Right it's gut wrenching, and his little kid is is in tears. Yeah, it, it was really powerful, and it, it was so powerful. We said we can't do this because, you know, Buford should die for doing that, mm -hmm. and we know we can't kill him off. So we just, you know, we just had, uh, you know, we just had the deputy come and say, you know, you're under arrest for. Uh, Rob in the Pine City stage, and what his actual full line was for the murder of you know Marshall Strickland and for Rob in the Pine City stage. So we we trim that out so that you just say, okay, Mar the Marshall was somewhere else on that day, and nobody has a nobody has a problem with that. So that was the only only thing we cut out of part three, and we cut out some some little stuff out of part two. The most um, the most interesting thing that we ended up cutting out was when Biff returns to 2015 after having stolen the DeLorean and going back to 1955, he staggers out of the DeLorean and he collapses. And the scene went on and we actually see him being erased from existence. Mm -hmm. He completely disappears. And because we thought, okay, what Biff did by changing history and ended up causing his demise. We speculated that Lorraine got so pissed off with him, you know, in the 1990s that she finally just shot him. <laughs> um, but when we, we previewed it with that scene in it, the audience was completely lost because at that point they didn't know that Biff had changed history. Right. So, we just cut that part of it out and he comes out of the staggers out of the time machine and collapses. And everybody just says, Oh, he's, you know, the strain of time travel made him collapse. And, and that was the end of it. And it yeah. worked fine. All right. What's the verdict? Have you heard that question before? Uh, I'm sorry, which, which was the question? The, um, <laughs> if there were any deleted scenes or uh, ideas. Oh, that you wish. Yeah. Yeah. People have yeah. asked that before. You know, okay. Yeah. Would we ever put something back in? No, we would okay. Um, let's see. We'll do this one. Okay, this is from user Optimax. <laughs> this is a really obscure one. I'm very curious about this. Was there a specific reason why the rehydrated pizza was half green peppers and the other half pepperoni rather than mixing them up? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's never been asked. <laughs> that is, has never been asked. Well, all I can, all I can pretend to remember at least mm -hmm. is that back in those days, it was a big deal that you could go to Pizza Hut and get a half and half pizza mm -hmm. that, okay. you know, somebody might, 
Somebody might not like green peppers or somebody might not like sauce or pepperoni. So you could just get them, get it half and half like that. So we thought it was a cool visual anyway. Oh, it's, I mean, no, that's one of those things again, as a kid, you're like, whoa. I, I was curious if it was like a red and green color thing, like you couldn't mix them too much or they wanted to have them on different sides. If there's like some color theory I, behind it. I mean, if you, no, I mean, if you had gone into a pizza hut in those days, you could order a half and a half pizza and it would come out looking like that. Mm. We actually had uh, from Pizza Hut, they sent a pizza, pizza, one or two. There might have been two of these guys, uh, or they could have been women. Um, uh, pizza stylists. You know, when you, when you do yeah. a food commercial, they mm -hmm. have these people that are there and their job is to make the food really look good. Yeah, I've so, read about that. Yeah. So and that they were there and they, you know, they were spraying whatever they did on the cheese like to make sure or something all, all melty and stuff. Yeah. And my yeah. favorite is that they use like shaving cream instead of whipped cream because whipped cream will dissipate and shaving cream right. will like hold it. Right. Right. They use mashed, use mashed potatoes instead yeah. of vanilla ice cream. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this one you probably heard by like a lot. So this was from Echo 1931. Uh, which scenes still make you laugh and or bring you the most joy from the movies? Well, that's a very good question. That really is. Have you heard um, it before? Well, people often ask me what was my favorite moment mm -hmm. uh, in filming the movies. But no, I don't know that anybody's asked me what is your favorite what is your favorite bit in the movie? I will tell you that one of the, the my favorite things in a movie that never gets a laugh. Never. Uh, is when Doc Brown is demonstrating how the time machine works. And he's saying, you know, or you could go back and witness the birth of Christ. And the time display shows December 25th, zero, 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 zero. Yeah. Nobody laughs at that. And I think that's really funny. <laughs> that's um, no, no, I, yeah, I do. I did pick up on that. <laughs> zero, zero. So I'm curious, like if you want to go past, there's no, is there a negative spot? They're supposed to do yeah well they say we 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 decided okay um you don't how do you how do you go back to to the Jurassic to the Jurassic yeah I don't know <laughs> yeah like my but dad always said that if he could go back in time he'd want to go to um the splitting of the Red Sea that was his thing he wants to see that event well Woody Allen said you don't ever want to go back to a period of time before indoor plumbing <laughs> <laughs> if you oh, here's one for me if you could go back in time or forward in time where would you want to go well the, the this is a good parlor game mm -hmm. uh for those of you listening that work in companies where you have new employees and you're you're just mm -hmm. kind of trying to get everybody to know each other um it's a good question to ask and you say you have one one trip that you can take for personal reasons and one trip that you can take for historic reasons. And it's important for everybody to write down the answer before they speak, because a lot of times people say it and they'll say, Oh yeah, that's something I never thought yeah. of. You could, you could go back and see, uh, you know, you could go back and see the Beatles at the Hollywood bowl. Mm -hmm. I never thought about using the time machine to go back and see a performance You go back and, you know, you go back and see the, um, premier performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or, you know, The Sound of Music or something like that. Um, so my personal thing would be that 
my mom was a professional violinist hmm. and after world war ii she had a nightclub act called maxine and her men she had a little ensemble uh she was on the violin she had a little band four or five players and they played uh they played in clubs and hotels in the st louis area and i would like to go back in time and catch her act that's that's awesome that i would really love to do that and my historic thing i used to always say well i would go back to dallas in november 1963 mm-hmm. uh and look at the grassy knoll instead of looking at the motorcade and find out how many guys actually were on the grassy knoll if there was anybody on the grassy knoll but i think those of us that have studied that incident are kind of dead set sure that there was at least one shooter there. So um, let me get this straight. You wouldn't try to stop the event. You just want to uh, see how it happened. Well, you know, we already know that when you try to change history, there's always, there's always repercussions and whether you can do it or not, um, which by the way, was one of the coolest things that we did that we figured out in back to the future, which was we did change history, but the only history we changed was the history of the McFly family. Mm. Um, everybody else's history was the same. So. Well, in you, you know, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, but, as a that, viewer, yeah. as a viewer, you know, you weren't coming back. You weren't see, walking out of the theater saying, well, wait a minute, you know, Hitler won World War II or some okay. shit like that. Um, it was always, okay, yeah, the McFly family has improved. And actually, Biff has improved, too, as some somebody once pointed out. Biff is now, you know, uh, a, his own boss and, and an entrepreneur. You know, he may be a sleazy one, but at least he's uh, he's he's out of the corporate food chain. And that's that's got to be a, that's got to be a good thing. So. Um, was uh, so Chuck Berry was uh, popular in all in all uh, timelines. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I'm sure I could ask plenty of questions, but one more. Why Why Johnny Be Good? Was there a reason behind that specifically, or was it licensing? No, it was. It had nothing to do with licensing. It was, you know, we kicked around a couple of ideas, you know, and, and I was the one that said it's got to be Johnny Be Good because it's arguably the greatest rock and roll song ever written at least it's, it would be in the top five i mean they put it on the gold record that's on the voyager spacecraft yeah right so that's the one rock and roll song that was on there mm-hmm. so you know we kind of we're, we we kind of know that all right if aliens actually ever find that and they figure out how to listen to it and they listen to johnny be good and then they intercept some signal of back to the future being broadcast and they watch it they say, oh yeah we get the guy <laughs> what what other songs were, were considered well you know rock around the clock was something mm-hmm. we thought about for about 10 seconds but we said all right wait they're using that on happy days everybody's yeah. heard that too many times it was used in um uh blackboard jungle that was the title music in blackboard mm-hmm. jungle and we just thought that's that's kind of and it's not really a quintessential rock and roll song. It's a it's a good period song. Blue suede shoes was something we thought about. Um, but at the end of the day, we said, all right, the father of rock and roll is Chuck Berry. And to not honor Chuck Berry with one of his songs, 
Mm -hmm. that that's criminal you know we yeah. can't do hound dog you know okay yeah it's a great song but it's got to be chuck berry it's it's got to be him yeah. so and of course when we went when, when we went to chuck 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 loved the joke because a lot of people say well you know what are you guys doing saying that you know a white kid taught chuck berry how to play johnny right <laughs> it's a joke dude yeah. it's a joke you know and chuck berry thought it was funny and if he thinks it's funny, you ought to think it's funny too. Because if he had a problem with it, he would have said, "Well, okay, you can use my song, but you can't do that gag." But no, he he loved the gag. He said, "Okay, yeah, great, great," because he he saw it as 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 an homage to him, which is exactly the way we intended it. Oh, great. Well, thank you for indulging me in the some back to future <laughs> conversation. Sure, but yeah. um, I want to turn to your comic career, which uh, doesn't get enough recognition. So tell me about transitioning to writing comics. What was easier? What was more challenging? Well, you know, I'll tell you, first of all, an interesting story of how it, how mm -hmm. somebody contacted me and said, hey, you want, you want to write some comics? Because I'd done a lot of interviews where I talked about the importance of, of my reading comics growing up and how that was a huge influence. And I'd gotten my first published first thing I ever had published was a letter to the editor in uh, Tales of Suspense number 98. <laughs> uh, so for you comic collectors out there, it's the one that has Captain America and the Black Panther on the cover. And uh, you go in the letter page and there's there's my first published first thing I got published. Um, so out of the blue, I got a phone call from a guy named Jordan Gorfinkel, who's one of the editors of Batman, uh, and this would have been in in the late 1990s or maybe the early 2000s, and he said, uh, Bob, I understand you're a big comics fan, and you've always said good things about Batman. He said, would you be interested in, uh, in participating in what we call the Bat Summit? Actually, let me go back. It was... They first offered me, they said, we're doing these text stories in, I think the title of the book was Batman Chronicles. Um, and they said, would you do, would you consider writing a Batman text story? And we'll get, you know, we'll get somebody good to illustrate. And they did. They got Bill Sankiewicz uh, to illustrate this. And it was called To See the Batman. And I'd been heavily influenced by, this, the series Marvels uh, that Kirk Busick did um, with Alex Ross uh, is a fabulous series. And it's the history of the Marvel Universe told from the point of view of an ordinary guy who just, you know, he, he looks out his window and he sees Galactus and the Silver Surfer coming down to Earth. That's a really cool way to do it. So I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to do a story? where there's this high school kid and his ambition is to see Batman because there's another kid in his school who had Batman show up chasing a criminal and busted up some his greenhouse in the back, his parents' greenhouse in the backyard. And this guy became like a minor celebrity because he saw Batman. So this kid decides he's going to go out and he's going to try to get a photo of Batman. And that'll make him even a bigger celebrity than this, than this other kid. 
so he starts going out in the middle of the night on his bicycle, uh, going to the worst parts of town and hoping to see him Batman. That's a, it's a cute little story. Uh, so then they invited me to participate in the Bat Summit. And the Bat Summit was what, sh- what they had to uh, kind of track the plan, the trajectory of Batman for the next six months. And they'd just done this series where Gotham City got leveled by an earthquake. Mm-hmm. I forget what the subtitle of the series was, it, was. I think it's No Man's Land or something like that. No, No Man's Land was what followed this. Oh, okay. Uh, so No Man's Land was what they were what they were planning. And uh, Jordan said, you know, it'd be good to get somebody who is not, you know, so steeped in comics continuity to offer some suggestions and ideas and thoughts, but who's who's already a Batman fan. And I said, well, it just so happens that I'm going to be in New York at the time you're doing this. So, yeah, I'll be I'd love to participate in this. So um, this is where we started to um, started No Man's Land. We kind of it's a one year, a one year trajectory. Mm-hmm. And we worked out the first six months. And then after I got back to California, I had three of the Batman editors get on the phone together uh, to persuade me that, you know, you have to write, you have to write the opening book. You have to do this, Bob. Nobody else can do it. So, you know, okay. I was flattered. Um, And the cool thing about this first issue of no man's land is Batman isn't even in it. (laughs) Uh, It really kind of sets the whole world. Um, And everybody loved it. And they got Alex Maleev. I think this was his first work at DC Comics. Um, and it was interesting. I'm trying to remember, did I script the whole first four episodes? I think I did. The first four books of that were mine, yeah. And um, my comic book writing style was very loose because I figured, let the artist come up with stuff that mm. I couldn't think of. But what I would always do is I would, I would write all the dialogue and I would say, this scene needs to be two pages or this scene needs to be four pages. And I'd say, this is what happens. Here's all the dialogue, figure it out. Uh, Cause I knew the artist needed to know the dialogue to make sure there was room in the panels to put the dialogue. And I thought that would be a good, comfortable way for, uh, for an artist to work. Well, Alex was kind of new to this because he was from Eastern Europe. And I, he was just not used to having such a loose kind of style. And so some of his pencils came back and they didn't really make any sense. So then I had to go back and say, okay, we've got to break this down panel by panel. And Gorf was, he understood my frustration at this. So he said, I want you to come back and write another book in this series. And I'm going to get Phil Winslade to illustrate it. And Phil will be perfect working with your loose style. Uh, and he'll be able to come up with some stuff that you wouldn't think of. And Phil did. Phil was, he was a prince. And so that was a one-off issue. And then once these these Batman books started coming out, then I get a call from Joe Casada at Marvel mm-hmm. and saying, well, Bob, we want you to write for us too. And I said, okay. Um and I think the first thing I wrote for them was this Ant-Man special called Ant-Man's Big Christmas, which 
happens to be actually my favorite thing I've written for comics. Mm. It's really, it's, it's really kind of twisted and subversive. Um, and originally their intention was that they were going to, they were going to do this in the giant, in the giant comic format that was real popular at the time. So the idea that Ant-Man would be in this, be in this gigantic, huge size comic was, was cool, but they decided they weren't doing, going to do that anymore. And I said, look, I said, I'm not, I'm not up on all the Avengers continuity and all the Ant-Man continuity. So I need the story to kind of exist a little bit outside of the continuity so that I can write the characters the way that I know them. So it starts with a, it starts with a couple pages of Ant-Man with the Avengers and it's, it's Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. It's not Scott Lang and whoever the wasp is with him. You know, I just, I based all these characterizations on the, on the versions of the characters that Stan Lee used to write. And the, the story was that the Avengers are opening up their fan mail and it's, it's getting to be close to Christmas and they're deciding, you know what? We ought to each answer some Christmas wish that some kid writes in. So this kid writes in that Christmas is always ruined for him because his father agreed to a dying wish by his mother that he would invite their their family over for Christmas every year. His mother couldn't stand it, stand the family. And would there be anything that Ant-Man could do to, you know, to to deal with this? And, the and you know, Hank Pym was thinking, yeah, you know what? My family was a bunch of jerks. Um, I didn't like, I didn't like going to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Let's go, let's go visit. Let's go. Let's, let's do this one. Let's do this one. And they, they get to the kid's house and, you know, the, you know, he's got an uncle that sniffs the kid's mother's underwear. And I mean, it's all this and somebody else that's smoking, constantly smoking cigars. Um, And so Ant-Man figures out a way to, to uh, basically terrorize, terrorize these horrible relatives. So they're not going to be interested in ever coming back to any family events at this kid's house. Uh, But there's one last, he has these extra doses of shrinking gas that he uses to, you know, he shrinks this guy down and puts him in a box full of all kinds of trash and garbage and vapors so that he can understand what it's like to smell cigar smoke you know anyway anyway um there was one last thing and he's able to use it to give his parents there he uses to give the kids parents you know uh shrink them down so they can ride um on his father's electric train set and mm. it's a real it's a real nice little ending and uh so comic fans out there go go uh go dig it up on ebay or whatever it's uh they they were Marvel was a little bit. I said, "Gail, you really want? You really doing this? Because <laughs> it's it's a it is subversive, and there's some perversity in it." But mm. I said, "Yeah, come on, let's do this. Let's 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 be crazy about this." Then later on, when uh, when Marvel hires me to uh, to be in the group of guys that are running Spider Man for a couple of years, this is. Um, 
brand new day when they unmarried Spider-Man uh, to kind of reboot the continuity. So I came up with this character and I was pissed off that they decided to kill him off. But I came up with this character called the bookie. Because mm-hmm. I thought, okay, we're having all these superhero battles all the time mm-hmm. throughout the Marvel Universe. There's got to be some boogies out there that are, you know, taking taking bets on, you know, who's going who's gonna to win when Iron Man and the Hulk fight each other? You know, what, what are the odds that you give me, you know, when Thor fights the thing? Um, so I said, this, this could be a really cool character who's always out there hustling for you know, superhero, supervillain battles, you know, and I wanted him to smoke cigars because that's what he would do, right? And at this point, you know, the prudes running Marvel Comics said, oh, gee, we don't want to, we don't want to depict smoking anymore. I mean, come on, Nick Fury without a cigar, give me a break, right? I said, look, I'm not depicting smoking in a positive way. You know, I'll I'll even do some cancer jokes and and stuff to make it clear that this is not a good thing to do. Um, but people smoke, you know, everybody knows that. And it's ridiculous that we don't depict it. And it's what's the problem with depicting this in a way that is not romantic? You know, it's not a Bogart movie. It's. It's it's a trashy guy called the bookie. Yeah. So I ended up appealing this to some somebody higher up at Marvel, and they finally said, "Yeah, okay, all right, we'll go go ahead and do it." And I think yeah. I was the only guy. Well, I think you know, being Bob Gale helped me out a little bit there because I don't know that anybody else was ever able to ever able to show anybody smoking. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I was reading some of the comics online last night. And they and um the yeah, that bookie even like starts off in quote the villains bar or whatever they call it, the bar with no name that's just full of villains. It's like, oh yeah, right, this is right. obviously not a quote nice guy. Unfortunately, right. your Ant-Man comic it was not on the Marvel um digital app. But I did read uh your Daredevil series, the six issues you did in ninety-eight. Right. And that was fantastic. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was just such an easy idea that I was surprised nobody had ever done. You yeah, know, so Matt Murdock has Matt Murdock has to sue Daredevil. Yeah. How cool is that? For property know. damage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, the great Phil Winslade came on board and he illustrated four of the six four of the six books. Did a yeah. fabulous job. Yeah. And what, yeah, what's even more interesting is that like there's barely any actual Daredevil action in it. It's it's really like a John Grisham um story. Yeah. It's a, it's a court battle between where Matt's trying to play both sides. Where he has to work for the prosecution as Matt Murdock, and he's working as the um, with the defense as Daredevil. And uh, there's a great line where he says, "You know, two identities means twice as much trouble." Um, so I, I and it took questions. forever. It took forever for them to, uh, you know, for, for them to put that in, in a trade paperback. Mm-hmm. And again, part of this was I was never really down with what oh, who's who's the writer that. Turned Daredevil into Batman. Oh, Frank um, Miller. Yeah, Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. I I I love Frank Miller. I love what he did with Batman, and his his stories were always really good. But every time I read his Daredevil stuff, I said, "This is a guy that really wants me doing Batman." And having grown up on the 
on the Stan Lee version of Daredevil, to me, I totally understood the character. Here is a guy who, unlike most superheroes, his real identity is the guy when he puts on the suit. Right. Um, because that's the only time he can be free. He, he, he can use, he can't, he has to pretend like he's a blind man. Um, and then when he puts on the costume, he doesn't have to be that guy anymore. And he's, you know, when, once he's in the costume, he's, he's cracking wise and he's doing crazy stuff and he's calling himself daredevil and it's a red suit. And this is a guy that wants attention. You know, he's not wearing a dark, you know, gray suit like Batman because he's a creature of the night. He's wearing a bright red suit yeah. um, because he wants to have fun. And so, you know, I said, I said to the, to, uh, to Joe, I said, look, that's the, that's the iteration of character that I understand. I just don't understand Frank Miller's take on the character. You know, even though the fans may love that, um, I can't, you know, I can't get my head wrapped around why he would be that way, given, you know, given his history. Yeah. So, you know, Joe said, you know, okay, write it. Um, you know, this is Marvel Knights and, you know, every creator gets, you know, six or eight issues to do something and they're going to be understandably a little bit different from each other. And um, if that's the version of Daredevil you want to write, write it. Were you given like a plot, like a very basic plot um, idea or like an end place in the start place? Or- no, no. In fact, what I really wanted to do, the the reveal at the end is that the villain is the ringmaster. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be Dr. Doom. Mm. I knew Daredevil had a history with Dr. Doom. And I actually thought that it would be cool um, as a setup for, you know, a giant, you know, one of these giant mega events that Dr. Doom would be able to implant false memories in people and totally wreak havoc with the Marvel Universe that way. So I had this whole vision of of doing that. Um, But they said, no, you can't do that because whoever's writing the fantastic for whatever they have other plans right. for Dr. Doom. You can't, you can't go there. And, you know, and that kind of harkened back to what, what happened with, um, what happened with the end of no man's land. Cause it didn't, it didn't, it didn't end the way I'd wanted to end. And I, I didn't get to go back. I didn't go back for the second bat summit to talk through the second half because, uh, DC was too cheap to, to buy me a plane ticket. Um, I'd flown there, you know, I've been there on vacation with my family, take my kid to New York for the first time. I said, I can take, I can take off a day and and do this. But they said, we want you to come back and participate in the bat summit. I said, I'd love to. Um, You're going to, you're going to cover my travel, right? They said, well, no. And I said, well, guys, come on. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lay out a couple hundred bucks to, uh, to fly there on my own dime. Uh, for you guys to get the you know get the benefit of my of my talent and my wisdom here, right. so I said okay. I, I respectively decline. I can't do it. Yep. And the idea the idea that I had 
uh, as the payoff for No Man's Land, and it's sort of there, but it's not as good as it should have been, was that there was, they had always, they had, the editors always said, there's there's got to be this mystery villain kind of operating in the background, pulling strings and doing stuff. And when they started laying this out, they didn't know who the mystery villain was going to be. And I said, finally, I said, well, it's got to be Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor should be buying up Gotham City because nobody's in there, knowing that at some point it is going to be back in part of the United States and Luthor will own it. And everybody thought, God, that's a fucking great idea. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. But then by the time it was time to do that, you know, the whoever was doing Superman at the time, they, they were doing some other stuff with Lex Luthor. And I, I don't even remember how, how it ended, if, if Luthor is tied into it or not but that was my vision of it and um an alternate maybe it happened in an alternate universe i've got two quick questions that i want to ask okay. let's cover our traditional ending questions in walter hill's episode um the man who was death william sadler walks into a diner and asks for a cheese sandwich if you're going to walk into a diner and ask for a cheese sandwich what kind of cheese would you want me you well it also depends what country i'm in because, you know, if you ask for provolone cheese in the UK, you're not going to get it. They don't even know. They don't even know what you're talking about. Um, I, it, I'd probably ask for a grilled cheese sandwich with the, with cheddar cheese. Right. Go completely traditional. Yeah. Traditional last question is, you know, dad, we're dads from the crypt, and uh, we know Telescript loves to give out um, advice to the youngsters. So, as a father, as a, a mentor, what advice would you like to give our audience? The weird advice that I always give to people mm -hmm. is learn how to deal with rejection mm. because rejection is a huge part of everybody's life and nobody really talks about it enough. Um, it can be devastating, you know, and I put it in the context of back to the future because the project was rejected over, over 40 times and if Bob Zemeckis and I believed what the people were telling us about why this movie would never get made and so forth, if we believed that we would have never gotten it made. Right. Um, so you have to be able to say to yourself, okay, um, as, as Jennifer says to Marty in the movie, you know, Marty, one rejection isn't the end of the world. Um, and 40 rejections isn't the end of the world either. Hmm. So yeah, you're going to get rejected. Um, Everything you do somewhere, you're going to get rejected. Is it by, you know, the person that you want to go out with? Um, is it by somebody you want to be friends with? Is it by the college you're trying to get into? Um, is it by some club that won't let you in? Uh, whatever it is, you're going to get rejected. You know, okay. It's human. It's, it's everybody has to have, everybody goes through it and, you know, don't let it make you miserable because, There'll always be something else. I remember reading a really interesting study. This was many, many years ago. And this it was actually, it was at the time when it was at the time when my daughter was applying to college, which is, you know, okay, this is get ready, get ready for rejection folks. Um, and somebody done a study about what happened to the kids that didn't get to go to their first or second choice schools because they were rejected and end up going to their third or fourth or fifth choice schools. 
were the kids happy? And the answer was yes, they were. They were because we're human beings. We're very resilient creatures and we learn to make the best out of the situation that we're in. And so, yeah, okay. I didn't get into Harvard. You know, I went to, uh, you know, I went to University of Massachusetts instead. Uh, I went to, you know, Miami of Ohio, whatever, whatever college was your, you know, third or fourth or fifth choice um, or even your last choice. You know, you learn how to make friends. You learn how to take classes and you make something of it and it's it's fine. And you end up happy and you can end up being just as successful by going going to one of those colleges as as you would have been if you went to your first or second choice. I love it. All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on. This was a true honor and a blast. Uh, where could people find you? Well, uh, I'm not on social media. Um, Do you have a because, website? Uh, I'm more on the anti-social media <laughs> thing. Because if I was on social media, I'd be so busy answering folks that yeah. I wouldn't get any, I wouldn't get anything done. So, um, you know, backtothefuture.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, run by my good friend Stephen Clark. Uh, they always know where my personal appearances are going to be. Um, put in a big plug for Back to the Future, the musical, which has been playing for two years in uh, in London. Uh, and we open on Broadway for previews on June 30th. Um, it's Back to the Future as a musical comedy. It's really great. I know there are a lot of people say, oh, God, I wouldn't be caught dead in a musical. We have had a lot of those people show up in London um, and turn around and say, wow, am I glad that I showed up at this one because this exceeded all my expectations. So um, as the guardian and gatekeeper of Back to the Future, I want to assure all fans that you're not going to be disappointed in Back to the Future the musical. It is Back to the Future. It's not Woke to the Future. It's Back to the Future. It's the We Didn't Ruin Your Childhood going to have a wonderful time so i'm going to be there uh hanging out uh rehearsals and previews so if you're in new york maybe you can track me down um and you know in terms of me doing signings and convention appearances just watch uh watch back because i show up at these things every once in a while and uh and uh you can buttonhole me there uh if, if you find me all right Well, that wraps things up. I appreciate everyone for listening. And with that, I thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure. (laughs) Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. (laughs) No, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs>